morning concludes our relational series, and as John said, our goal throughout has been to graciously and humbly counter cultural and personal confusion with gospel clarity by looking to our Father's Word and by submitting ourselves to His good design. This morning, we turn our attention to our sexuality. And parents, in case you missed um, the church-wide email this week or the post on Facebook this morning, um, if this is the first time hearing that we're going to talk about sex and sexuality, um, you are welcome to take your elementary-aged children next door. On the third floor, there's a class for them. Uh, but that's if you so desire. It's really your choice. If you want to keep them here with us, uh, they are more than welcome uh, to remain with us. Maybe I can help spark a dynamic conversation for you later this afternoon. That's, you never know. When I was a boy, um, I don't remember how old I was. I just remember it was me, my older brother, who's two years older than I am. His name's Daniel. Um, I, he, my dad put us both in a rowboat. We were at Joe's Pond, and he rows us out to the middle of the pond, drops the oars, and uh, the talk happened. I thought multiple times throughout the talk that I'd jump out of the boat and swim myself back to the shore. Had I known what was coming, I probably would not have agreed to get in the boat to begin with. I thought we were fishing or something cool. Um, so this is, I just want to let you know, we're going to Joe's pond this morning, okay? This is the pond. This, you're, in the, you're in the rowboat. We're about to hit the pond. And that's the shoreline over there, like those back doors. Um, so, so this is your opportunity. I'm actually going to pray. And if you want to swim your child to shore, uh, you can do that while our eyes are closed and it's fine. But seriously, I am going to say some things that my dad did not say on the pond. I will use some words that my dad probably didn't feel free to use on the pond. So just so you know, like full disclosure, that, that is where we're going um, as best we can this morning. So let me pray and we'll get down to it. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us, for adopting us. And we have every reason to rejoice, even in difficult seasons of life. Father, I pray that you would help us now by your grace and through your spirit to be humble, to receive your word um, with glad hearts. We thank you for speaking definitively into, um, into our culture in a topic, into a topic that can be contentious, can be chaotic, can be confusing. We thank you for your kind um, clarity. It's good for us. Help us to embrace it and to receive it with humility uh, this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I also want to say before we do work, I want to say this, um, that this sermon will not mock or demean um, any person identifying as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or any person struggling with sexual identity or unwanted sexual desire. In the words of Christopher Yuan, uh, in a book that he wrote recently entitled Holy Sexuality, he said this, uh, he said, such hurtful actions and attitudes fail to honor the dignity of the Imago Dei um, in others, and it fails to honor the dignity and value of others created in that image. It also forsakes our calling as Christians to reflect the image of Christ and to proclaim the good news kindly, graciously, and humbly to those who have yet to believe. And I absolutely agree uh, with what he said. So that's going to be our spirit and our intent this morning. Here's our summary sentence for the day. 
While sexuality is God's beautiful gift to us, sexual orientation is not ultimately identity, and unconstrained sexual expression will not lead to personal fulfillment or happiness. Let me just give that to you one more time. Uh, While sexuality is God's beautiful gift to us, sexual orientation is not ultimately identity, and unconstrained sexual expression will not lead to happiness or personal fulfillment. Um, What we're going to do is this. We did it a couple weeks ago. There are a series of passages that I'd like to read briefly from, just so you get a sense of um, our Father's voice and where we're going this morning. Um, See, I got them all tabbed out right there. So I'm going to read from them. They'll all be displayed on the screen, and then we will begin unpacking a few of them and exploring uh, the implications. So here's Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, looking at his new wife, Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and not ashamed. Now over to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. And over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then over to Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
And finally, uh, with the words of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. Mark 8, 34. It says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It goes without saying that we live in a culture saturated with sex and sexuality. We live in a generation with profound sexual confusion. Did you know that Facebook lists 71 gender options for you when you establish your profile? 71 different options. And that's not a consistent number. It goes up, it comes down, they add some, they take some away. It's it's ever-changing. We live in a generation with profound sexual confusion. Culture says that our sexuality is at the core of who we are, defines you, right? Your sexuality is who you are. Our culture uses terms like heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual, and others. I know there are others to elevate sexual desire or feelings to the level of identity. These labels have become categories for personhood. That's what we're talking about. Culture tends to make sex and sexuality ultimate, right? Um, Are you sexy? Do you have sex appeal? Then you have some personal worth to the culture based upon that sexuality, your attractiveness, or what you can offer through your presence and through how you look. That's your worth. Your worth culturally and your happiness are very often directly proportional to the size and the shape of your breasts, your hips, your waist, your biceps, your abs, and so on and so forth. And even if that message is not spoken, it's definitely visually communicated. Everybody knows sex sells, and so that's really how advertising, advertising works. Are you unhappy? Well, culturally, the solution would be, one of the primary solutions would be to follow every sexual thought and desire that you have, chase it down, explore it, express it, express it fully, um, because sexual freedom equals personal fulfillment. The more partners you have, the happier you'll be. Sexual desire is the pathway culturally to fulfillment and happiness. Your sexual attractions are your identity, is what our culture would tell us. What you feel has authority over you and tells you exactly who you are. And in our modern age, you don't even need a sexual partner anymore. There are actually studies that would suggest that people in in their 20s in our culture are less sexually active, even though we're so sex-saturated, than they were in previous generations, at least with other people in their presence. doesn't mean that they're less sexually active, but maybe less sexually active with another person, we could say it that way. Because you don't need a partner. You can invite yourself into the sexual experiences of countless people 24-7 with a flick of a wrist or just a click or browsing the internet. Um, And we do. We do. Porn dominates the internet. You can read any number of studies um, that analyze internet usage, and they kind of rank the news services. You can see the, the conservative ones and the liberal ones going back and forth. You can see the sports sites and gambling sites and just the sites that get the most traffic. But you know what always trumps those numbers? Like, I mean, exponentially. I mean, it's porn. It's pornography. But you're sitting there and you're thinking, John, I don't, I don't watch porn. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't watch porn or I haven't in a long time. Yet, Many shows and movies that we choose to stream into our homes through any number of online services are laced with sexual innuendo, um, nudity, just straight up nudity, or even sex itself. Still, we're being invited into sexual experiences 
that other people are having as if we are somehow a passive participant in those experiences. But it's not, it's not passive for our, our souls. And for a culture so saturated in sex, so hypersexualized and sexually active, you would expect to find increasing clarity and increasing happiness. That's what we should be finding. Rather, instead of clarity, confusion, not happiness, wounds, hurting people. In fact, there were three articles trending just this week which illustrate this reality. I didn't even have to go looking for these. They just, they trend every week. One was on CNN. The title was, Three STDs Reach All-Time Highs in the U.S. They wrote for the fifth consecutive year, combined cases of, and they list some diseases, have risen in the United States. Combined, they totaled 2.4 million infections that were diagnosed and reported just in the last year alone. The combined number marks the most cases ever recorded since monitoring began in the U.S. The new report found that rates of reported cases tended to be highest among adolescents and young adults. What's that say? It says that we live not only in a sexually confused generation and culture, we really live in a sexually wounded generation and culture too. Lots and lots of wounded people. The landscape is littered with wounded people. Sky News um, from the Brits. Sky News, uh, here's the article. Hundreds of young trans people seeking help to return to original sex. A woman who detransitioned in 2018 says that there are many people who have had gender reassignment surgery who wish they hadn't. Charlie Evans, age 28, was born female but identified as male for nearly 10 years before detransitioning. The number of young people seeking gender transition is at an all-time high, but we hear very little, if anything, the article says, about those who may come to regret their decision. There is currently no data to reflect the number who may be unhappy in their new gender or who may opt to detransition to their biological sex. Charlie detransitioned and went public with her story last year, and she said she was stunned by the number of people she discovered in a similar position. Charlie says she has been contacted by hundreds of people seeking help. And one more is entitled Confessions of a Social Constructionist. The guy's name is Christopher uh, Dumit, or yeah, Christopher Dumit. He writes, I was a gender historian. There's a new career path for you. Um, he said this was in the 90s and it was the thing to be in history departments across the U.S. Uh, and Canada. Back then, quite a few people disagreed with me. Almost nobody who hadn't been exposed to such theories at a university could bring themselves to believe that sex was wholly a social construct because such beliefs went against common sense. Reasonable people might readily admit that some and maybe a lot of gender identity is socially constructed, but did this really mean that sex doesn't or gender doesn't matter at all? Was gender solely based on culture? Yes, I would insist, he said. And now my big idea is everywhere. It shows up especially in the talking points about trans rights and policy regarding trans athletes and sports. It is being written into laws that essentially threaten repercussions for anyone who suggests that sex might be a biological reality. If you take the position that gender is at least partly based on sex and that there really are two sexes, male and female, as biologists have known since the dawn of their science, uber progressives will claim you are denying a trans person's identity, which is to say you are wishing ontological harm upon another human being. He concludes, I once made the same arguments that they now make, but I was desperately wrong. But I want to full stop right here. Um, in case you're thinking I'm going a certain place, this sermon is not about the perils of STDs. I'm not trying to scare anybody out of having sex. It's not about Charlie Evans or Christopher DeMitt. 
The sermon is not for your gay friend. It's not for your trans relative. It's not for your bisexual coworker. It's not for your gender fluid classmate. It's not a sermon to arm your arsenal so that you can browbeat people with some Bible verses. This is a sermon about us and for us. The sermon is for your heart and your sexuality, your sexual brokenness and your sexual rebellion and your need to be reconciled to the Father through Jesus and experience restoration and recreation through the gospel. That's what this sermon is for. And thankfully, in our sexual chaos and confusion, our good father speaks not just with clarity, but with kind clarity. He's kind in this. And we should be too, as representatives of our father, um, in a culture that will disagree with just about every word I'm about to say. Our posture should be one of kindness and clarity, but kind clarity. And thankfully, in our sexual consequences, in the landscape just littered with wounded souls, Our Father speaks with gentle grace. And when we enter into these conversations, we also should enter into them with a posture of gentle grace. So let's break that summary sentence down. The first piece of it was this. Sexuality is God's beautiful gift to us. We began by reading the creation account from Genesis. And we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But before we talk about us, I actually want to talk about the God who created us because, I mean, there's actually even confusion about God and his own gender or sexuality for our generation. Um, Is he man? Is she woman? Is God gender fluid? Do pronouns matter? Can you refer to him as she or can you refer to her as she, to he as him? Does it matter? Now, while God created both male and female persons in his image, that's what the writer of Genesis says, all of scripture makes clear that God himself is neither male nor female. The creator God is not contained in human categories. God transcends gender. He's above it and beyond it. So in scripture, you'll notice, God chooses to reveal himself to, or reveal himself to us as a father, right? He's a father, But God the Father is spirit. He does not occupy a physical body. He doesn't have masculine qualities about a physical body. He's spirit. He chooses to reveal himself to us as a son, Jesus, who does actually, in fact, occupy the body of a man and will, as we understand it from Scripture, forever occupy uh, the body of a man. And then God reveals himself to us as spirit. Again, spirit, not body. One God and three co-equal, co-existing persons. And sometimes... In Scripture, God is characterized um, metaphorically as a mother with some feminine qualities, particularly when he's describing his tender care for his family. There are multiple female, or metaphors that lean feminine or even um, portray God with feminine qualities. And some will see these metaphors and then run with them saying, look, God is gender fluid, or I can refer to him as her or he, depending on how I feel. But again, God is transcendent, meaning he is above categorization, and we choose to use the pronouns he and him to refer to God and to speak to him simply because this is how God chooses to reveal himself to us. So we approach God on his terms, not on our own, um, and we approach God according to how he reveals himself to us, not how we would like to perceive of him or speak of him. 
So our transcendent God creates male and female persons, not through a sexual act, as some dominant religious movements would say. God did not have sex with a goddess or another member of the Trinity. There wasn't some weird sexual thing that happened. The author of Genesis says, out of the dust of the ground, God formed man and he breathed the breath of life into him, into her. That's how we were created, not through a sexual act. Both male and female image him uniquely. So if God were male or female or gender fluid, it wouldn't be true that both male and female do in fact fully reflect the image of God. One would more than the other, or sometimes the other would more than, um, than the other. But scripture says that both male and female image God equally and uniquely um, as male and as female. All right, now let's talk about us. We'll spend most of the morning talk about us, talking about us. The Hebrew terms for male and female are different than the words used for man and woman. These words bring specific attention to human sexuality. What we need to understand is these are binary. They're binary terms. They're complementary pairs meant to work together. That is, there is no blending. There is no fluidity, if you will, in God's creative design. There is nothing in between the two. There is nothing in addition to there is male and there is female. And that's not just true of his creative act with people. This is true throughout the creation narrative. If we went back and read all of Genesis 1 and 2 this morning, you would see there was light and darkness, right? Day um, and night, evening and morning, earth and sea, and so on. When we read of God's creative work with plants and animals, we read a key phrase repeated over and over again in Genesis 1. Each of those plants and animals were created to reproduce after its kind. You see that phrase over and over again. You should read it later today. It's everywhere. After its kind. After its kind. This reality signals to us that our creator God placed distinct parameters over creation In other words, there's a certain order to creation. There's an absence of fluidity and of chaos and of confusion. In fact, God created order out of chaos. He spoke order into existence for creation's good, for our good, for your good and mine. And what we need to see in this is God's parameters are not unkind in these restrictions. They are are kind. Without these parameters, all of creation descends into chaos and confusion. God's creative design parameters are life-giving, meant for human flourishing because he's a kind father. Johnny is outgrowing his bike. Actually, I had to throw it out because it's she destroyed it. So he wants a new bike. He's got his heart set on this 20-inch beauty. And I'm like, dude, that thing will kill you. You are not, like, you're just not big enough for this. He doesn't understand why I would hold that, why I would choose to withhold that gift from him. It's okay. When he's 38, he'll understand and he'll finally appreciate it. I got it. Um, But I'm being kind to him because I don't want him to to destroy himself. The parameters, the order is not an act of unkindness. It's an act of kindness for his flourishing. And so God creates male and female, opposites, nothing in addition to, nothing in between. And this is essential to who we are as image bearers of God. In God's creative pattern, he created male to be sexually attracted to female and to enjoy sex with her. And he created female to be attracted to male and to enjoy sex with him. And this creative design, God's creative design for our sexual expression stands authoritatively over every culture and every generation. Again, for our good and our flourishing. As we see in Genesis, sexual expression is God's gift to be enjoyed between a man and a woman 
who have entered into a monogamous covenant relationship with one another. Not a polygamous relationship, not a polyamorous relationship, or even an open relationship, but a covenant relationship between husband and wife. Sex is part of God's blessing in marriage. Did you know, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, it's almost, I think it might even be the first command. If not the first, it's in the top two or three. Um, God commands Adam and Eve to have sex. That's the command. In order to uh, fill the earth with other image bearers of God who will exist as representative prophets, priests, and kings, like we've been learning about over the last couple of weeks, for God's glory and for the good of all creation. So having sex was one of the first ways that Adam and Eve were actually asked to submit to their creator's God intent, to their creator God's intent for creation. And husbands and wives, nothing has changed since then. We'll, we'll see that in a few moments. We also read from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews said, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is the author's way of saying that God's design of marriage and creation stands across generations and cultures. It's not, sex and sexuality are not social constructs. Sex and sexuality, is, they are creation constructs. God constructed them at creation. The experience of sexual intimacy in marriage, uh, what we need to understand is this. It is a great gift. It's beautiful in its place, but it is more than just a great gift. Um, Sex and sexuality stand as a sign pointing to better gifts, actually, than sexuality. Take your best sexual experience within marriage. It is a shadow of beautiful gifts that the Father has in store for us. These signs are part of the reason why our sexuality and sex within marriage is so sacred. That's what the author's saying. Sex points to more beautiful realities. I like the way N.T. Wright explains this. He says, the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation of heaven and earth belonging together. And we are in this age of a great division between heaven and earth, of brokenness, of chaos and confusion. And our sexuality and our sex points to this reality that God's creative design was for them to be united in harmony for our good and his glory and that he is working to reunite them. It's a signpost. And in the New Testament, Paul, you see this all over the place, Paul actually likens our sexual intimacy in marriage with our spiritual union with Christ. It is a sacred sign pointing to the nature of the church's relationship with Jesus and of the beauty of that relationship. It's, it's sacred. And then we read in Hebrews, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Just for clarity, the author is not talking about the furniture that is in your bedroom. It's not what he's talking about. In case, just in case, he is actually talking about your sex within marriage. Sex is beautiful and life-giving within marriage. As a gift that the Father gives to us, sex seals, solidifies, strengthens, and safeguards marriages on every level. Science backs this up physically, emotionally, spiritually, physiologically, and psychologically. There is no other tangible gift that has been given to marriage that has such a profound and far-reaching effect as the healthy expression of your sexuality within marriage. What the author is also saying is that marriage is the only God-honoring and life-giving context for the gift of sex to be enjoyed. Sex inside of marriage is life-giving. Sex outside of marriage or before marriage actually has the opposite effect and is not life-giving. It is life-taking. 
Expressed in any other context, the author says, our sexuality, to use his word, is defiled. What he means is the gift of sex outside of marriage is polluted. The sacred sign is distorted. And now to be clear, I want to make this clear. We're not just talking about sexual intercourse. We're talking about the full range of sexual expression uh, within marriage. Man, I remember my single days all too well as a teenager and as a young single Marine and after getting out and thinking about my sexuality and just my interaction with uh, young women, thinking, well, we're not actually having intercourse so as if there are different categories or levels of acceptability to our sexual expression insofar as like, man, we're really not having intercourse. And we make that argument, that justification with porn all the time. Well, I'm not really having sex. Like I'm not having intercourse with somebody. So it's, it's not that big a deal. It's in a different category. It's just porn. But the author uses this word sexual immorality pointing to to all sexual expression in any form outside of marriage, being outside the bounds of God's creative good design for us. Um, Any sexual expression to include um, oral sex or anal sex or just your hands or just your eyes or just fill in the blank. That full range is beautiful and life-giving in the context of marriage. Outside of that context, um, it has the opposite effect. It is not life-giving. It is life-taking. Our Father is serious about these parameters. The author says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterer. The Greek word translated as sexually immoral is the same word we get the word pornography or porn from. It's meant to be broad in meaning. In other words, what what the author is doing is he's saying, I'm not just talking about your body ladies. I'm not just talking about your body, guys. I'm talking about your heart. That's what Jesus did. He said, man, if you look after a woman, talking to men, to lust after her, having sex with her in your imagination, you've, you've already, you're guilty of committing adultery, right? So we still, this term encompasses body, heart, mind, soul, the, the full thing. And that, the weight of that needs to rest on our souls this morning because none of us are innocent in this regard, And so what this means is the full weight of God's judgment rests on our shoulders for our past sexual rebellion and our ongoing sexual rebellion. So sex is a gift meant to be given fully and frequently in the marriage context. And man, we read in 1 Corinthians 7, do you remember what we saw there at the outset? The husband should give sex to his wife as a gift. The wife should give sex as a gift to her husband. Neither has authority over their own body. In other words, their sexual, your sexuality has been given by God for the good of the other person in your marriage, ultimately. Is that not a countercultural idea? It's really not about you. It is for the joy and the flourishing of your spouse. It's for them. That is countercultural and beautiful. It's life-giving. Paul says, I love what he says. Y'all should love what he says. Do not deprive each other of sex, except perhaps by agreement, got to agree on it, for a, did you notice the qualifier? A limited time. And he doesn't give the full list of reasons why you can or should. And clearly it's not a full list. But all he says is prayer. Have you done that? Are you practicing that? Obviously there are other reasons. We're not going to try to build a list and exhaust it. But he says, that's it. And then do it again. Come back together and resume a a vigorous, healthy sex life. 
And what we need to gather from this passage as well, these principles here is this, men, we will not ask our wives to do anything sexually which causes them to feel used or degraded. Nothing. And we won't push to get our way when she expresses displeasure. Ladies, if you're dating a man who is constantly pushing and constantly asking, it will only get worse after you have made the commitment to him. That is, it's not, it, is a, it is a sign of a character that does not love Jesus and does not value the Imago Dei in you. He wants to use the beauty that you possess for his own good, and he cares little of yours. And ladies, a practical implication of this passage is this. Sex is not something that your husband has to earn from you. It's a gift that you give. It's not a means to manipulate your husband or control him. It is a gift that you give willingly, gladly, freely, and without condition. Because we all know no man or husband will ever measure up anyway. So it is meant to be an exchange of gift from husband to wife without condition. So sex is good. It's not bad. It's created by God for his glory and our good. It's not dirty. We shouldn't be embarrassed talking about it. We really shouldn't even be that uncomfortable, especially with our kids. We should be training them to, to talk about it with us as parents, as natural and healthy. There is not shame or guilt or embarrassment associated with sex. In a perfect world, sex would never be associated with guilt or shame. Rather, sex would just be purely associated with God's kindness and life-giving marriages and as a reminder of the gospel. But for most of us, for most of us here this morning, that just is not true. That is not your personal experience. That is not our personal experience. Our sex and sexuality has been or is outside of God's kind and good creative parameters. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. So the second piece of that sentence is this. Sexual orientation is not identity. A Sam Alberry uh, who I encourage you to Google and read anything he's written about singleness and sexuality. It's gold. Uh, Sam says this, we all have a sense that we're not quite who we should be. We don't do a very good job of being us. How we have been born is not quite right. We have all been born a bit wrong. Sam is talking about the Imago Dei in us, like we've been discussing the last couple weeks. That image is marred because of sin and it's in desperate need of restoration in Jesus. Desperate need of restoration. What God created is beautiful and good. It's not gone. It's just that there is brokenness now in place of beauty. There is guilt where there was innocence. There is shame where there was purity. There are wounds where there was health and vitality. And that all happened because Adam and Eve rebelled from our creator God. And the curse of sin went absolutely global, corrupting everything and staining every human heart. And that is definitely true as it relates to our experiences of sex and sexuality. There really is not a person in here who does not bear some guilt or some very deep wound. Probably many of you bear wounds um, that are very closely related to your sexuality. The gospel indicates that none of us have lived up to God's creative ideal for sex and sexuality. None of us do and none of us can perfectly. And like we said, many of you have been deeply wounded. You've been wounded by another's selfishness, most likely against your own will, being used to gratify another sexual, being used to gratify another person's sexual desires, or 
You were in a relationship where you should have been sharing that beautiful sexual, sexual intimacy with somebody, and you have watched them be enslaved to a porn addiction where they are sharing what should be beautiful in your context with another or with another physical human being. And there are deep wounds. To use Sam's words, we all have a sense that we're not quite who we should be. And isn't that what we saw in Romans 1? I mean, that's what we read, the biggest chunk that we read this morning from Romans 1. We read of an exchange. Rather than having hearts oriented on our creator God, in rebellion, we orient our hearts around gifts that the creator gives. So rather than worshiping him as we're supposed to, created to, we worship his gifts. And this exchange never comes without consequence. Romans 1 is especially helpful because it's talking about this exchange, but Paul, the author, actually uses sex and sexuality as the example. So what Paul tells us is that when we exchange worship of the creator for worship of his gifts, sex in this case, our hearts change. Impurity is introduced. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, and we inherit that impurity. We're born in it, and we're born with it. And those impurities introduce what the author calls dishonorable passions. This pollution in our heart distorts and disorders our desires, our sexual desires. That's what he's talking about, dishonorable passions. He's talking about creative or sexual expression and sexuality, sexual acts. We were created in God's image with these good creative parameters, but now all of these desires that we should be feeling, all of these affections, they're all distorted. Every one of them is polluted. Every one of them is disoriented. And so we displace a life-giving orientation on our creator with a life-taking orientation on our sexuality. Christopher Yuan Yuan says it this way, when I make anything else the core of my being, especially my sexuality, it's a distortion of the, the Imago Dei. And look, this distortion, this disordering of my desires is not just something that Paul aims at those who consider themselves gay. If you're not, if you're not new to the conversation, if you've been around for a while, you're just going to get used to people going to Romans 1 and all that they want to talk about is homosexuality. And while it is true that Paul does talk about homosexuality in Romans 1, he's talking about the full range of our sexual expression as image bearers of God. What Paul is saying is this, this pollution affects every person, whether you are other sex attracted or same sex attracted. Every one of us in this room has sexual distortions because of our inherited sin nature. Theologians would call that original sin or inherited sin. In fact, to be straight with you, no pun intended, the Bible does not categorize people by Um, sexual desire, or any other desire for that matter. The Bible just doesn't do it, and neither should we. We are all in the same boat. We're created in the image of God. Okay, That's, that's the big category. We are image bearers of God. Now, as image bearers of God, we have all also rebelled, right? We rebel from his kind kingly rule. So we're all rebels. That's in our identity. And then some, by God's mercy, God rescues us, and now we have this identity as rescued rebels, so the image of God is being restored in us, but we still are under the curse of sin, and we still have profoundly disordered and distorted desires. Have all of your desires and affection, have they all just been suddenly changed because you became a Christian? Is there the absence of all tension and all struggle? No, it's lifelong. And this distortion and disordering of the Imago Dei and my sexuality may express itself with questions like this. Man, 
We saved ourselves for each other. Why is our sex life in marriage so difficult? Why does it feel like we have to work at this? Why is it not as beautiful as everybody said that it would be? If God is so good and loves me and sex is great, why in the world would he make me wait for marriage? Why wouldn't he just say, go, go be happy and fulfill yourself? What's wrong with a little porn? What's wrong with scenes of sex or nudity in the shows that I choose to watch? What's wrong with masturbation? It doesn't hurt anybody. Why does porn own me? Why can't I have a normal conversation with a woman or a man without focusing on her or his body? Why does my sexuality feel more broken than it does beautiful? I'm a male. Why don't I feel male? Why am I attracted to men instead of women? I'm a female. Why don't I feel female? Why don't my affections and my desires and my attractions align with who I was seemingly created to be? Why am I attracted to women instead of men? Why would God create me this way but place restrictions over my sexual expression? He can't be kind. He must be cruel. Again, in the words of Sam Albury, we all have a sense that we're not quite who we should be. We don't do a very good job of being us. How we have been born is not quite right. We have all been born a bit wrong. And then he says this, and I really like it. He says, we didn't come out right the first time. That's why Jesus says, you've got to be born again. Rosaria Butterfield says, Adam's fall, Adam and Eve's fall, rendered my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. And if that's true, if what Rosaria is saying about our, our feelings, our affections, if they're not trustworthy and they're not true, which the gospel seems to indicate, it does indicate, then why in the world would we take the culture's advice to look inward to our sexual feelings and attractions and desires for our identity and our purpose? But that's what we do. That is exactly what we do when our hearts are not oriented on our creator. When Jesus is not ultimate, when one of his gifts like sex and sexuality has become ultimate in his place, this is what we do. Um, Jackie Hill Perry, who authored the book entitled Gay Girl, Good God, The Story of Who I Was, which I would absolutely commend to you. She writes this, just as Eve let her body tell her what she should do with it instead of God's word, which would have reminded her of, of, of what it was made for, I was inevitably prone to the same kind of unbelief, the one in which sin seemed better than submission. Guys, that's the heart of the matter right there. That's it. That's our battle. And in kindness, Jesus looks every one of us in the eyes and says, son, daughter, your sexual feelings are not trustworthy all the time. Your sexual feelings are not true all the time. They lie to you. There's pollution, there's distortion, there's disordering. They lie to you. Your attractions do not and cannot define who you are. They're not ultimate over you. They are not ultimate. I am, Jesus says. They don't have authority over you. They don't own you. I do. I created you and gave you life. And so Jesus in kindness says, we don't need to find our identity through sexual expression because our identity is given by God. We're image bearers. 
I don't find ultimate happiness or peace through sexual fulfillment. I find that in Jesus. Do you know the root of all your sexual sin, the enslavement to pornography, the masturbation, the constant lusting, the inability to have a normal relationship with the opposite sex because your thoughts are just so consumed of sex and sexuality. At the root of all of those sins is is a dissatisfaction of Christ. There is not a satisfaction with Jesus. And so we're going, our identity is not rooted in him. And so we go and we look and we search and we're looking for that outside of Christ, but it's impossible to find. Jesus said, can't find them anywhere. I, I need to find Jesus and I need to submit all of my sexuality to him, trusting that he is good, he's better. I don't gain a clear knowledge of myself through my distorted sexual desires. I gain a clear knowledge of myself when I look to Jesus and submit to him. Paul said it this way, in him we live and move and have our being. Family, what Jesus is saying is in Christ we have our being. Our identity is found in him, not our sexual orientation and not in our sexual desires. Sexual orientation is not personal identity and is not strong enough. It's not weighty enough to hold personal identity. Culture says, look within, look into the brokenness, look into the chaos to find clarity, look into the brokenness to find beauty. Jesus says in the gospel, look up, your identity is found in the Imago Dei, which was perfectly expressed in me. So look to me and submit to my kind kingly rule. I am better. I am better. Which leads to our final piece of the sentence. Unconstrained sexual expression will not lead to personal fulfillment or happiness. The Bible says God is a good father, right? And many of you have been following Jesus for a long time. And even through difficult seasons, you would say, he's good. I know he's good. I trust he's good. Life is hard. Just because he's good doesn't mean he'll make things easy, but I believe he's good. So if unrestrained sexual expression leads to personal fulfillment, wouldn't a good dad tell us that it did? Like, wouldn't he just make it clear, like, go have sex with as many good-looking people as you can, and you will find happiness and fulfillment? Wouldn't a good dad just tell you the truth and not make it complicated? If unrestricted sexual expression leads to happiness, wouldn't he just say, man, go for it, son, go for it, daughter? If sexuality was identity, and identity is a big thing, like, who you are really matters, wouldn't our dad just make it clear with no ambiguity? Like, trace down whatever you feel, express it to the fullest extent, and you'll find who you are. But he actually says the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, we read this, flee or run from sexual immorality. And sexual immorality would be any sexual expression contrary to God's good creative design for us. That good creative design is celibacy and singleness and fidelity in covenant marriage. That's the good design. God says, any other sexual expression or temptation, son, you run far and fast from it. Daughter, you run and you come back home to me. Don't embrace it. No matter what your heart, mind, or body tells you, you run. So here's the question. Do we really believe that our father is good? Do we really believe that his intentions for us are good and kind? Do we trust him enough to go against our desires and our sexual attraction and our sexual urges, which lie to us and don't tell us the truth all the time anyway? Do we trust him enough out of obedience to him and love for him to run away from that and run to him? I shared from Jackie Hill Perry's book, Gay Girl, Good God, a few minutes ago. She talks about the struggle for herself. She said, unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. That's what unbelief is. So it, it, it can't see sin, sexual rebellion, as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing, and thus God's commands is a stumbling block to joy. 
In believing the devil, I didn't need a pentagram pendant to wear. Neither did I need to memorize a hex or two. All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. That's it. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience. And that's what our culture tells us. Your affections are worthy of your absolute obedience and you have authority over you and nobody else can speak into your experience. That's what she said. I had to believe they were worthy of my absolute obedience and that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne I'd made for myself, that I'd be doing a good thing. But in regards to your sex life, your sexual desires, and your sexual orientation, Jesus says in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him, what's the verb? What's he call us to? Let him deny himself. Let her deny herself. Not let him express himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self needs to be denied. It's polluted. It's not perfect. It's not trustworthy. It's lying. It's not oriented on Jesus. It's oriented on you and yourself and your own gratification. It's lying to you. Self needs to be denied. Listen, we all need to hear this, especially those of you who are happy practicing heterosexuals. Every one of us in this room are all sexually oriented in the wrong direction. Same sex attracted, other sex attracted. You are all sexually oriented in the wrong direction. We are naturally oriented around yourself, wrong direction. We are naturally oriented around our own good, not another's wrong direction. We are naturally oriented around our own disordered desires and not God's good creative design. We, all of us, same sex attracted and other sex attracted, need to repent reorient on Jesus and submit to his kind kingly rule for our lives. What that looks like is submitting all of my sexual orientation, all of my sexual identity, all of my sexual expressions, all of my sexual desires, all of my sexual hopes, my sexual dreams, my sexual thoughts, my sense of self, everything to Jesus willing to deny myself out of love for Jesus and out of a trust that he's better and he has better intent for me than I have for myself and that he knows me better than I know myself and submit to his kind rule, submit to Jesus. So in closing, and I do need to close, but I wanna say a few words that are important. Um, to my same-sex attracted friends who may be in the room or um, maybe will listen to this later, um, I, just, I want to personally say that I love you and that I affirm the Imago Dei in you. Um, and I would not have said that as a younger man. I kind of grew up in cultures that were very quick to belittle or demean a person based on how they expressed their sexuality. And then as a young single man in the hyper-masculine world that was the Marine Corps in the 90s, um, man, that, just got, that, that sense just got heightened there. And then I come out of that world and I'm a salesman going through college. Like I go door to door selling ice cream for Schwann's and other very yummy food that I miss very much. And I had gay customers. Like I had dudes who were living together and I'm stepping into their homes and like not even wanting to be in their presence, not even wanting to sell to them considering, I mean, I make commission off sales, but having such a sense of myself of pride and judgmental attitude that I would consider not even going back to them as a customer because of who or how they expressed their sexuality. I wouldn't even affirm the Imago Dei in friends of mine who were same-sex attracted. And Jesus, through the gospel, had to do a lot of work in my heart to introduce humility and to help me to see that my sexual distortion was not any 
better than their own sexual pollution or distortion, that they were created in the Imago Dei just as I was. And that as a follower of Jesus, he called me to befriend them and to affirm the Imago Dei in them. And when the opportunity was there to speak truth, but in a graceful, gracious, humble way. And it wasn't until a couple years later of that first knock on a door when I was in my gym, Planet Fitness, I hate to admit, in Binghamton, New York, where a dude, Tony, walks up to me, struggling with his workout. He's like, yo, can you show me, show me whatever. I didn't realize it was a pickup line. It was a pickup line. Tony wanted to go out with me. So he asked me out after I showed him how to, whatever the, the exercise was. And uh, I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm married. Um, but I'll still go out. You, you like, you offering to buy a meal? Cause uh, <laughs> I'll go out. So I went out with Tony and um, it was weird. It was weird. But we talked about, like, we got to talk about the gospel. Like, we got to talk about the Imago Day. And Tony ended up coming to church, like, a couple times. Not that that's the end-all, be-all, but he was curious enough to come and worship with my wife and with me. He's like, man, your wife is going to hate me, dude, because, like, I'm attracted to you, and I really want to be with you. And I'm like, I don't know if she's going to hate you. Like, she feels the same way. So you have <laughs> more in common. But, guys, that's not who I was. Like, Jesus had to cultivate that in my heart. And we as followers of Jesus should be friends. We should be kind. We, we don't have to affirm um, choices. We don't have to agree with the sexual ethic in order to treat somebody with respect because they're image bearers of God. And Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. I'm a, I'm a sinner, so it's not like I'm doing that person any favor. Like, I'm a sinner too, but to be a friend. Um, so I had a lot to repent of, but I love you and I affirm the Imago Dei in you, even though you probably don't like a lot of what I may have said and, and, and we have disagreements here. For those of you who are trying to follow Jesus and you wrestle with same-sex attraction, is your temptation toward same-sex attraction a sin? No, the temptation itself is not a sin, but it is a constant reflection that we're fallen, that we're polluted, that we're disordered, that your desires are disoriented off of Jesus and on yourself. And so the encouragement from Jesus would be those, that sense, those feelings, those attractions are not to be embraced as good. They're not to be elevated to identity. It's not who you are. Your desires do not define who you are, whether you are same-sex attracted or other sex attracted. Jesus defines who we are. I really like how Chris uh, Yuan states that he says, the biblical opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the ultimate goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And as a matter of fact, he says, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, another a woman who was uh, practicing lesbian for a long time, she said this, my new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus. I was converted not out of homosexuality, but out of unbelief. And then Jackie Hill Perry says it very similar. She says, I know what I didn't know then. God was not calling me to be straight. He was calling me to himself. The choice to lay aside sin and take hold of holiness was not synonymous with heterosexuality. In my becoming holy as he is, I would not be miraculously made into a woman that didn't like women. I'd be made into a woman that loved God more than anything to include my desires to be with a woman. And so to submit those desires and those affections to him and to live in a way that honors him. Friends, your predisposition, which you very well may have. Remember, we are born into and with this polluted, inherited, um, these disordered, distorted desires. But your predisposition to a certain sexual attraction does not mean that you have an inescapable predetermination. Your desires don't define you. 
Your same-sex attraction and your same-sex attraction or the expressions of it are not unpardonable sins. To the single people in our family, Jackie Hill Perry loved this. She said, our sexuality is not our soul. Our marriage is not heaven and singleness is not hell. Love how she said it. That could be the sermon right there. She said, listen, listen, she didn't say this. I want to say this to you. Submitting to Jesus as a single person in our culture will be the hard road. It's not an easy road. It will be a heavy, it will be the hard road. You will sacrifice and there will be suffering. But I want you to know you are not missing out. You are not missing out. Sam Alberry says it this way. He says, the most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship and he never had sex If we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment or happiness, then we are calling our Savior subhuman. You're not missing, you are not missing out in this season. If you're a virgin in your singleness, man, I want to commend you and I want to encourage you to persevere. Don't tap out. Honor Christ with your sexuality. It is life giving for you now, even though it feels like the hardest thing you're doing. It's life-giving, and it will be life-giving to your future spouse in marriage should God bring you into a marriage. But I want to urge you as somebody who comes out of the, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, what were those rings called? The purity ring culture and the I kiss dating goodbye culture, like all that stuff that just went weird in the other direction. Guys, the virginity is not ultimate, um, and it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that when you get married, it'll be a perfect marriage, and it's not a guarantee that your sex life will be out of this world. For most marriages in this broken world, a healthy sex life is something that you have to work at and cultivate, and you experience many setbacks along the way. And most of us bring sexual wounds or just deep sexual shame into a marriage. Um, It's it's not a guarantee. So obey Jesus, strive for it. It's good, but don't don't idolize it. Don't put it on a pedestal um, where it doesn't belong. Don't make it ultimate. To keep marriage in perspective, Sam Albury again says, marriage itself is not meant to fulfill us, but to point to that which does. We expect from our earthly marriage what we will find only in our spiritual union with Christ. So if and when you marry, you find that your marriage is a disappointment to you, please bear in mind that's because it's supposed to be. It's not meant to fulfill you. It's meant to point you to the one who does. If marriage is meant to show us the shape of the gospel, your singleness shows us its sufficiency. Your singleness is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Jesus we already possess what is and that he is better. Family, let's pray for each other urgently. Let's talk with each other honestly. Let's go to these places in our conversation. Go to Joe's Pond regularly. Go there. Ask questions. Be honest. Show mercy. Let this family be known as a safe place to confess sexual sins, wounds, hurts, confusions, and unmet longings. And let's affirm the imago Dei in each other, in all people. And let's point each other to Jesus in humility and grace. And to those who are professing Jesus but not submitting to him with your sexuality, can I just say this? Rebellion from Jesus in your sexual expression means death for your soul. Paul said in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, your sexual desires, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
In Proverbs, it says, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. It looks good. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps follow the path to hell. It's gonna kill you. It will kill you. It will stab you and take your life from you and make sure your heart is not beating anymore. Please cry out to Jesus for rescue. Don't let sex and sexuality be ultimate any longer. It will kill you. Okay, I've talked way too much again. So let me just say this. For all of us, the sexually rebellious, the sexually broken, those crushed under the weight of guilt for sexual sin, those who are sexually wounded and seemingly hopeless without healing from Jesus, redemption and restoration are found in him. You are not beyond rescue. You are not beyond redemption. You are not beyond restoration. You are not beyond reorientation. In repentance, Jesus always shows grace, no matter the extent of your rebellion. And in running, him to, in running to him with your wounds, no matter how damaging your wounds, Jesus always shows kind mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We need it. We all bear guilt. And many, many of us in this room bear deep and profound and lasting wounds. So Jesus, please this morning, Introduce healing, maybe for the first time. Jesus, introduce humility so that those carrying this guilt and shame can repent of it and know peace. Father, you're good to us. Help us to believe that you're good and you're better, that you are ultimate, to deny ourselves and to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.